0: In the summer of 2005, I was afforded a front row seat to what appeared to be a senseless tragedy with no plausible explanation. While working at a summer camp in Wisconsin during my college years, one of my closest childhood friends witnessed his father, age 50, collapse of a massive heart attack on the camp gym's floor while playing pickup basketball one afternoon during family camp. An ambulance arrived and whisked away him to the hospital nearby, and all nine of his children, all of them there that week, ranging from five years old to mid late 20s, frantically jumped into vehicles, speeding their way to the hospital. As my family sat there in the emergency room with their entire family, the fear was palpable. And finally, a doctor entered the room to deliver the sad news. My close friend, who I'd known since kindergarten, bolted out of the hospital doors, wailing in grief. He ran up on a hill behind the hospital and just sat on a stump, overcome with grief. I followed him, but I had no words. I simply stood there about 30 feet away, praying crying with and for him. How does a dad with a wife and nine kids in what is arguably the most critical years of life, who is in good physical shape, who has a vibrant Christian walk, even serves on staff at a church, how is it sensible that then and there is when he should pass away? My friend knew the promises of God. He knew God never wastes suffering in the life of a Christian. And he knew Romans 8.28 says that all things will work together for good to those that love God. But nevertheless, in the moment, none of that felt true. The present wall of grief was so thick and the pain so acute that it seemed God had Packed his bags and left altogether. Well, the Psalms of Lament comprise nearly half of the 150 Psalms in the Psalter. And they're notorious for asking two gut wrenching questions God, if you love me, where are you? And why is this happening? And I'm convinced that knowing and living out this biblical grace of lament is one of the most foreign, and even if not foreign, the most underutilized means of grace God gives his people as they wrestle with suffering in this life. The Psalms of Lament teach us what it looks like to appropriately complain to the Lord in a manner that honors him while rightly moving us from pain to promise. Lament is the minor key song that is sung by Christians when life hurts. That's why we specifically asked Ethan to play Psalm 77, which I know you weren't able to read on the screen. But it's a minor key song. And the tone of suffering is one that does not gel all too well with our typical American optimism, quite honestly. We love happy endings. We, we love come from behind victories. And we love never give up on your dream ideals. And those have their place. They're all good and well. But a lot of life is just plain hard. A lot of life is not wonderful. It's hard, whether you're mourning the loss of a loved one or dealing with a surprising diagnosis or wearied over personal sin that seems to haunt you day after day. Make lament your newfound friend. Just about every human being enters this life in the exact same way, crying. But while crying may be human, lamenting is something different. To lament is inherently Christian and innately Godward in its orientation. Lament is a prayer born in pain that leads to trust. As one author writes, lament is a prayer that leads us through personal sorrow and the difficult questions of life into truth that anchors our soul. Themes we've already sung about time and again this morning. Before we even enter into the particulars of Psalm 77, ask yourself a preliminary question this morning. When suffering comes, suffering of all kinds, all flavors, all varieties, what do you do? Where do you personally turn? Perhaps the Lord would want to teach you today of your need to grow in this foundational and biblical skill lament. Let's ask him once more simply for his grace. Father, glorify yourself. Soften that which may be hard within us. Teach us. Grow us. Mold us. No matter what lies before us, that clinging to you and holding to you, waiting on you, and in your word we place our trust. This is Worth it, come what may. In Christ we pray. Amen. As we situate ourselves within the book of Psalms this morning, the Psalter itself, as some of you may know, divides into five books, each grouped together with a certain coherency and each with its certain thematic thrust. Psalms 1 and 2 call everyone, from the nameless individual to all the kings of the earth to worship God's messianic king, orienting all of life around the law of the Lord. The writings of King David comprise much of the Psalms in the first half of the Psalter, expressing anguish of soul as the nations continue to rage against the Lord and against his anointed. But the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord, and he trusts in his steadfast love. But as the Psalter progresses so does the retelling and the representing of Israel's story, which is rife with disobedience. And by the time we arrive at Psalm 77, in book 3 of the Psalter, a theme arises of the defeat of God's people by the raging nations themselves. And by the end of book 3, in Psalm 89, the Davidic line is rejected And the crown lies in the dust of the ground under the very wrath of God. These are bleak days for Israel. And as we take a closer look at Psalm 77 in particular, we notice this is a psalm of Asaph. Chronicles tells us Asaph was one of David's three chief musicians, supervised by David himself. David's laments then would have been Asaph's laments. And although the psalm begins with the singular I, there is no doubt the sorrow that fills his soul entails the fate of all of God's people, viewing the prospect of destruction and a wiping out of God's covenant people by pagan nations. So once again, fear is high and the days look bleak. So what does a child of God do when the days look bleak? and the fears run dry? The answer? It's time to lament. This psalm of Asaph divides very naturally into two halves before us, representing two distinct moods or attitudes or outlooks or perspectives. It's as if Asaph spirals downward in despair in verses 1 through 9, as God appears nowhere to be found and as his remembrance of God only elicits moaning and grief. And then Asaph does a 180 degree about face in verse 10, and deliberately and decidedly points his attention with resolve to attacking his anguish with the glorious works of God in ages past. So our purposes this morning and for your helpfulness and understanding the flow of the text before us, We see in verses 1 through 9 a Godward mourning when all seems lost. We hear his cries of anguish. We see his questions of abandonment. And then in the latter half of the psalm, a Godward resolve to remember the deeds of the Lord. In which we see Asaph recount the works of God and in particular the glorious redemption of Yahweh for his people Israel. We'll begin by considering the Godward mourning when all seems lost in verses 1 through 9. As this psalm begins, the fearful, suffering psalmist cries aloud to God. Cries aloud to God. Don't miss the significance there. The pain is not kept within. It is given voice. And it's not merely given voice to the wind. It is given voice To God, who hears? Like any suffering saint, emotions run high. And mixing what we feel in the moment with what we know to be true, when we see these two streams merging time and time again, it is hard. The psalmist is no stranger to that difficulty. As we see that time and again, even in this psalm, Cries of anguish abound in these first three verses. The psalmist knows God will hear his cry. He also knows that in the day of trouble, he will seek the Lord. So we may get as far as verse 2 and we think, wow, he's got this thing. I mean, he's going to do, he knows, God's going to do what God's going to do in listening, and he's resolved to do what he ought to do in seeking the Lord. This is a perfect pairing together, counseling session over. We got this thing in hand. What more is there to learn? Not the end of the story. Well, what happens is Asaph believes God hears, so he naturally pours his soul out to the Lord, but nothing changes. Not a thing. The result is only sleepless nights. And as he writes, outstretched arms that have become weary in desperate prayer. These outstretched arms seem to receive no consolation at all from God. Where are you, God? Therefore, what's the result? Asaph's soul refuses cheap comforts. Anything that would derail his impassioned pursuit of God. But how long can that be sustained? Not long. Verse 3 reveals that in the very act of remembering a word that's going to play a crucial part in this psalm, God makes the heart moan and the human heart and the human spirit faint. Are the heavens sealed up? He must be asking. Has God abandoned me? The fears and the sufferings are enough. But to not hear from God, this seems cruel. If the Psalms as a whole teach us anything, it's to go to God with our our suffering and our cries. And it's as if this psalmist is saying, I tried it and I'm telling you it doesn't work. That should cause us to at least arrest our attention. We see then questions of abandonment continue to abound as this spiraling downward is furthered. Asaph continues describing his deep despair as God, as it were, prevents his eyelids from closing in peaceful rest. And now his troubled soul is so deeply vexed there are no words to speak. What began as a confident petitioning of the Lord later moved to these painful moans and now... Only silence. Unable to formulate any more prayers, Asaph considers his own heart along with the memory of brighter days. And he longs to sing the songs of these brighter days. Nevertheless, he's still resolved that he will not join the ranks of the wicked that end up saying, you know what, there is no God nor will he run to sinful distractions to divert his soul from finding resolution. Even though his prayers are not working, so to speak, he is still acting in faith that one day they will. Verse 6 informs us how Asaph is intent on heart-level meditation that makes a diligent search For answers. So, what follows here in verses 7 through 9 are six rhetorical questions. Will the Lord spurn forever? Will the Lord never again be favorable to me? Has the Lord's steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end of all time, for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? Pastor James Montgomery Boyce, the pastor of the former pastor of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in downtown Philadelphia, wrote these helpful words on praying spiritual questions. He said, It's better to ask them than not to ask them, because asking them sharpens the issue and pushes us toward the right positive response. A thought, be it good or bad, can be dealt with when it is made articulate. So even though everything for Asaph internally and externally appears to accord with these six questions, legitimate questions, we have to ask though, does Asaph genuinely, at the end of the day, truly believe what he's insinuating here? I think the rest of the psalm answers this question, these questions. We see, secondly, this Godward resolve to remember the deeds of the Lord. Verse 10 functions as a clear pivot point for us in the psalm. And God's right hand, so powerfully at work in ages past, is again Asaph's source of strength. He does this 180 degree turn, and with deep conviction and resolve, chooses to steer his discouraged soul to remembering the deeds of the Lord. This verse, however, is somewhat perplexing. It literally reads, this is my wounding, this is my grief, that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Now what that means is Asaph identifies himself as being wounded by the fact that the God of ages past seems to be operating very differently from his present situation. That brings a great grief. But in verses 11 and 12, the psalmist remembers God's wonders of old. He ponders God's works. He meditates on the Lord's mighty deeds. Remembering, pondering, meditating, these things once brought him faintness of heart, moaning, and groaning. But now, his memory is a springboard to trust. And what more obvious way to reestablish trust in his situation than to remember Yahweh's powerful redemption of his people Israel. Verse 13 draws out the holiness of God. And even as I'm doing some, somewhat of summarizing here, allow your eyes to continually be scanning over these verses. Verse 13 draws out the holiness of God, but not merely in His person. What does the text say? In His ways. Your ways, O Lord, are holy. So that's to say, not only is God intrinsically free from all impurity. But his ways, the route, the road, the path, the way, he takes in directing human history along channels that bring him maximum glory. This road is holy. This point is huge for Asaph. For it entails the admission that even in God's apparent inaction and inattentiveness, unresponsiveness his way is holy the same way that brought Asaph suffering and loneliness and heartache and discouragement and sleepless nights and on and on is governed by God's holy decree so that he can cry in the very next line what God is a God like our God how great is what God is great like our God. In verses 14 and 15, they extol the Lord for his strong arm in salvation, redeeming the children of Jacob and Joseph so that his might would be known to all the peoples of the earth. So the Psalm continues to to whittle towards a sharper point in verses 16 through 20, zeroing in on that singular act Of God that most demonstrably proved God's zeal for his own glory through the miraculous salvation of his people and the destruction of his enemies. What was this moment in redemptive history? Without a doubt for the people of Israel this was the Exodus. In a sense verses 16 through 20 trace out a rough sketch of God's protective care over his people. And verse 16 seems to describe the power of God's mighty word through his servant Moses as he led God's people through the Red Sea, causing the waters to tremble at the power of his command. Verses 17 and 18 are reminiscent of the images at Mount Sinai where God appears in thunder and lightning and a thick cloud which envelops the mountain and speaking to Moses in the thunder, giving Israel his law. We see in verse 19, could potentially refer to Israel's second Red Sea Exodus-like experience when they crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land, drawing an end to the wilderness days. And in summary, verse 20 appropriately honors God for his shepherd-like leading of his people by the hand of Moses and Aaron. It's impossible to read this psalm as a Christian and not hear the voice of the Lord Jesus singing this psalm as his own lamentable experience. Like Asaph... Jesus also cried aloud to his Father in his day of trouble. Jesus understood the discipline and the grace of lament. To his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, he lamented, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. For he knew full well that the ultimate silence from God was just on the horizon. And not merely silence, but wrath. In the garden, he labored tirelessly in prayer, feeling the agony of sleepless nights for us. Jesus petitions the Father for another way that would allow the cup of wrath to pass from him. But like the psalmist, Jesus surrenders to trust in the Father's holy and righteous way. So, for the Christian in troubled days when prayer seems altogether pointless, your personal fears perhaps are soaring, and your pain seems endless, remember the wonderful works of God. But most significantly, remember the supreme display of God's redemption that far outshines the wonders of Israel's exodus. Remember the glories of the gospel in which Jesus rescued you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has canceled the record of death that stood against us. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities by putting them to open shame triumphing over them at the cross. If Christ is not your Savior, and you are hearing these words this morning, remembering the deeds of the Lord can be a terrifying reality. Considering the Exodus narrative alone is frightening if you are not on the side of God. The waters described in verse 16 before you that God held back so that his children could pass through on dry land. These very waters became the instrument of destruction for countless Egyptians who refused to allow God's people to be released from bondage. And while the psalmist laments, he does so in faith knowing that God will, at the end of the day, prove himself trustworthy. But for you, friend, outside of Christ, in your suffering, what bedrock do you have? There is only shifting sand outside of Christ. And as verse 13 asks, what God is great, like our God? Ask yourself, what God of your own making, or of your own finding, is great like the Lord. There is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and that is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So run to him, I beg of you, run to him in your temporal pain, so he may rescue you forever from eternal pain. As believers, as we consider taking this psalm and applying it even very practically to our own lives. I believe God would have us grow in this grace of lament. First of all, grasp the pattern of lament. Mark Vrogup in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, speaks of the Psalms fourfold pattern of lament. Very simply, turn, complain, ask, and trust. Turning is addressing the Lord directly. When that moment of peril comes and we don't know what to do, it is the immediate posture of the soul, I will go to God. In complaint, we see... Complaint clearly, bluntly, and honestly as the means of laying out the reasons behind this sorrow, a necessary biblical pattern that is modeled for us time and again in the Psalms. Then there is an asking, an asking of the Lord to act in a certain way that is in accord with his will but removes the injustice and the wrongdoing that seems to be so obvious before us and that seems to to go unchecked from our limited perspective and asking of the Lord to glorify Himself, but to do us good and to remove the sorrow, if it be His will. And finally, almost every lament, almost nearly all, end with some form of praise or resolve to trust. And this is why every lament is an act of faith. Holding on to the precious promises of God, even in the face of unspeakable hardship. Secondly, is to embrace the reality of suffering. Embrace the reality of suffering, even as as a normal pattern in the Christian life. For many years, my approach to suffering, I think, perhaps... Uh, Any kind of negative thinking in general, I'm not sure, was for me like a mental game of whack-a-mole. You remember that game that would appear almost everywhere in arcades or whatever? There's these little moles that pop up in these holes and you have this little padded hammer and your job is to try to just whack them as fast as you can. I think perhaps it's just the American in me. I don't like being sad. So of any kind, it was whack, got to get rid of that. Right? Like there's an ant you know, crawling around or a fly in the room. We've got to get rid of it. But what the Psalms of Lament do for us in general, and what this Psalm does for us in particular, is acknowledge the normality of suffering, even intense suffering for normal Christianity as we live life in a deeply broken world. There is a certain legitimizing of the humanity of the suffering in the present moment. And while we await our final home in God's presence, our journey in the here and now will and ought to look a lot like the path of our Savior, which is marked by hardship and therefore marked by frequent prayers of lament. So the beauty of our uh, laments to the Lord is that he he doesn't rank them, thankfully. It's not as if we have lament prayer tokens and we only get maybe three or four a year that we can spend. So we don't want to use too many of them. We want to hang on to at least a couple in case something really bad happens along the span of that, (laughs) save a lot for 2020. Uh, God doesn't operate this way. We thank him. Our laments can be as simple as as expressing frustration to the Lord over habitual sin patterns that seem so indelibly ingrained in our hearts that even the spiritual disciplines don't seem to be making any difference. Turn. Complain. Ask. And trust. Perhaps you long to be married or to have children or to have more children. Turn. Complain, ask, and trust. Perhaps you have a marriage that is inexplicably complicated and rife with conflict and discouragement and even an endless soul searching. Only after endless soul searching, you are at your wit's end. What do you do? Turn, complain, ask, and trust. Perhaps there are 17 different medium-sized trials that have all happened to hit you in the span of a week or two, and you can't believe what others seem to be looking at you and saying, wow, that's just a really bad stretch of bad luck. But what do you know? I must turn, complain, ask, and trust. Third, way in which we might consider growing in this grace of lament is to guard against sinful alternatives to lament. Now, what are some of those? What might some of those look like? First, sinful alternative to lament is being angry with God. The idea of being angry with God and holding it as a a right of ours in the midst of suffering has been popularized even in recent decades of even Christian writings. This notion assumes that the sufferer is sovereign, and they are sovereign to mourn in whatever manner he or she decides works best for them. So furthermore, this puts God in the hot seat being called upon to explain just what in the world do you think you're doing messing up my nice life, God? A spot he ought never be placed in. Oftentimes this is fueled by playing the comparison game in which we find ourselves comparing ourselves with others at similar stages of life and we begin to measure our situation by what appears to be the entitled norm for our lives. And what a dangerous trap this can be. Anger directed towards sin is right. But anger directed towards God of any kind is always sin. However, unbridled pain, as many of you know, has has a scary, explosive power to it. And it is only through the power of Christ that Christians can respond in genuine lament and not resort to sinful anger. Next sinful alternative to be on guard for is the way in which, the countless ways in which we can give ourselves to dulling the pain. Very often when trials and sufferings increase, the pain is so great that the human heart will do anything to find relief. We won't discuss the many nuances here involved even on the medical, mental level of, of this conversation, but suffice it to say, Satan would love to see you turn away from God in your pain and instead find solace in the arms of some other false god to dull your pain. This may be alcohol. This may be all forms of immorality. This may be gaming, this could be eating, this could be binge-watching, even over-exercising, and on and on and on. There really is no limit. Instead, take those difficult feelings and emotions, ask hard questions, but move, move in faith toward trust in the Lord. Another sinful alternative might be giving God the silent treatment. This option suffers from ignition failure, you might say. Right out of the gates, the suffering Christian chooses not to turn and to position himself toward God. It's not so much that they are just being silent like Asaph in Psalm 77, but that they believe they can manipulate God. Perhaps they may do so as they have learned this pattern with others in their life and that they can manipulate god by trying to act like everything's fine it's fine and assuming that if god really cares he'll come groveling back to me he'll do a whole bunch of nice things to make this up to me right to sort of apologize for what he's allowed into my life what a danger this can be his way is holy and lastly and very appropriately to our present hour adopting a lockdown mentality what do I mean by that a privatizing of our pain similar to being angry with God but, but, but not upward more outward there's a sense in which our suffering does not belong to us entirely we don't own it as if it's some possession that is in our name. Yes, personal responsibility means others cannot turn to the Lord for me. We know that. But when brothers and sisters in Christ covenant to keep watch for my soul and to dispense God's loving mercy in the good times and the bad, it can be an act of stiff arming God when we blockade. His care for us through others. Think about that. Does this mean that you have to entertain every well-meaning overture from someone who wants for you to recount for maybe the, the 50th time all the details of your specific hardship or trial or suffering? Well, no, of course not. And there's a skill probably on the other side of that coin that God's people need to learn too about how to appropriately and kindly push or ask or support in ways that build up. But it does mean you may want to think less in terms of me and my privatized suffering and more in terms of how does God intend to use this suffering to build up his church and to expand the glory of his name as far as he determines. Perhaps God intends to build up weak Christians as he showcases through you the glory of his sustaining grace in suffering. These are just a few of the common examples of the ways lament gets sidetracked and avoided or dismissed by the Lord's people. I'm grateful our church has an ongoing grief share class in which many of these concepts are covered in far greater detail. And certainly there are so many more angles that can and should be addressed under this category. But I pray our understanding of lament this morning has been enlarged. Even as your resolve to personally practice this grace has, I pray, been emboldened. So what makes Psalm 77 so eminently helpful for the Christian is how clearly it demonstrates the depth of human suffering but also the sufficiency of God's truth by recounting the glorious deeds of the Lord and the promise of ultimate redemption provided for us in an even greater exodus the liberating power of Christ crucified. Indeed, who is a God like our God? May we turn, complain, ask, but always, always trust that the Lord will shepherd us through the fiercest storms until we see him face to face when he wipes away every tear from our eyes. Let's go to him now in prayer.